This is World to Win, bringing you the latest news and analysis from a socialist perspective. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of World to Win. I'm very excited uh, to be for the first time with our new co-host Dara. How are you doing Dara? I'm very well Yari. Um, delighted to be on as well at the same time. I was quite surprised I was asked back on actually so it's a pleasure to continue on with it now. Now you're stuck with us forever, Dara. I'm sorry. Um, uh, you need to you need to come to terms with it. But this episode is going to be one for the history books, uh, the first one of us together. And from now on, uh, it's going to be all easy going. So, tell us about this episode. What are we going to talk about? Yeah, well, I think over the last number of weeks we've had quite a lot of discussion on the war, uh, which is definitely. You know, as we reaffirmed time and time again, an event that's completely transformed the world as we know it. Um, world relations, but also, I think, class struggle. And I think now, up to now, our main focus has been on Russia. It's been on Ukraine. We've even discussed the impact of the war in, let's say, Western imperialist bloc and some of the impacts having there. But where and we discussed before how the war temporarily you know the ruling class you'd almost feel bad for them they came in to, after covid uh, they've never been more discredited as they have been before uh facing crisis on a number of fronts but then with the, the outbreak of war we discussed in other episodes how historically this has been the case you get a surge in nationalism um and we've seen the ruling class you know no better example than boris johnson um, who was staring down the crisis of Partygate. But then the war broke out, which he was one of the biggest saber-rattlers for, um, and it temporarily saved his skin. So promoting this idea of national unity, um, and that resulted in a temporary, but I think the key word there is temporary, strengthening of the centre of the establishment. But I think already now, and this is what we're going to talk about today, is some of the other consequences the war is having, particularly in parts of what we call the neo-colonial world, some people might call it underdeveloped world, the third world, global south, um, where we're already seeing the impacts it's having, particularly on the global economy, how it's disrupting supply chains. We're, all this is adding to just this perfect storm of inflation, of shortages, of stagnant growth, um, all feeding into just further instability and crisis, which is really, you know, the defining feature of this period, particularly with food prices. So I think that's something that's going to be a feature today, where Ukraine and Russia together account for 12% of the market share of global food calories, which is incredible statistic. Um, they account for 30% of global exports of wheat and 65% of sunflower. And then some countries, there's even heavier reliance on, on this. So Lebanon, for example, relies on Ukraine for 80% of its grain. Egypt uh, imports half of its sunflower oil from Ukraine. And then an even more staggering statistic is that 25 African countries import more than one third of their wheat from Russia and Ukraine. Um, so now we have a situation where Ukraine's wheat fields are now battlefields. And Western sanctions in Russia have accelerated this process of economic decoupling that we've actually spoken about on the show before. I think, you know, something we should come back to. Um, so, yeah, so now we have a situation of surges in energy costs and food prices and shortages of basic supplies. And that's hitting working class people all over the world uh, in the advanced capitalist countries. You know, 
Yeah, it's something I think we've talked about here in, in London and all over all over England. Uh, it's just people struggling to cope. Uh, the choice between eating and heating because of this cost of living crisis that many people are confronting. But actually, the, the impact in the neo-colonial world is potentially even greater. So a recent Oxfam report would have said that a quarter of a billion people could be thrown into extreme poverty this year. Uh, and that's less than a, a $1.90 a day. But I think also what we're going to talk about today is we're already seeing that this anger um, is boiling over into revolt, it's boiling over into protest. Two quite striking examples of that, which have been Sri Lanka and Peru, uh, but also um, demonstrations and, and stirrings uh, elsewhere like Sudan, Albania, Iraq. So we're going to discuss that today. So yeah, with, with us to, to talk about that is uh, two excellent speakers. First, I want to introduce JJ, who's a member of uh, ISA's International Executive and currently based in India at the moment. Uh, JJ, how are you doing? What have you been up to in the last uh, the last period? Hi, um, hi Dara. Uh, I'm good. I mean, uh, been pretty busy politically with everything that's happening. And I mean, yeah, this week my first son started school, which is quite a big event for a parent's life. <laughs> uh, no, apart from that, uh, yeah, I'm good, good. That's great to hear. Um, and then next speaker we have is someone who's been on the show plenty of times, uh, also a member of our International Executive Committee and based in Brazil. It's Andre. Andre, how are you doing? Hi, Dara. I'm fine. I'm happy to be here with you and Yara again and JJ. And I hope we can discuss this important process uh, in the new colonial world and in the world in general. Excellent. Look forward to getting straight into it. So I want to start with with JJ um, and just really, I think a question on everyone's mind is trying to understand what's going on today um, and exactly how the war is contributing to this surge in food prices. Now, and I'd ask a question, is it the case that the war is the sole cause of the problem or why are there loads of other pre-existing issues there? And in that sense, is the war only adding fuel to the flames of a crisis that pre-existed Putin's invasion of Ukraine? Well, I, you know, I, I think the surge of crisis is not, you know, it's not one single cause, and I don't think, uh, you know, the the war is is the only uh, factor. I mean, it's it's sort of like multi-layered crisis, and it's one that existed already before the war uh, in Ukraine. I mean, at the end of two thousand and twenty-one global food prices were already at a 10-year high, you know, uh, and that's because of a number of interconnected factors, um, drought and other extreme weather events affecting crop production being one of them. Uh, I mean, just to give an example, already before the war in Ukraine, uh, the prices of wheat, which is used to produce pasta, uh, had soared dramatically after Canada, one of its largest producers, uh, witnessed widespread uh, drought and, 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 and uh, heat waves. Um, you have the issue of supply chain disruptions. Um, and when we say supply chain disruptions, I mean, to be clear, these are not just you know, the, the temporary glitches because of the COVID-19 pandemic and lockdowns, even though these obviously play a role, but it, it's also like a more profound fracturing of the globalized supply chain uh, system as we knew it, which is kind of like, you know, going off the rails as a result of the growing tensions and confrontation uh, between major powers on the world stage, US and China uh, in particular. And the rising protectionism and nationalism driving the economic policy of uh, competing capitalist states in this uh, uh, context. 
Then there was already before the war a rising fuel prices, generating higher transport costs uh, for food, which you know the distributors pass on to their customers to preserve their, their profit margins. And now with the war and the more you know recent massive hike in fuel prices, this factor is clearly you know exacerbating the whole situation. Uh, but I think that, you know the, the fact that food prices were already surging before the war in Ukraine is a very important point to stress because you know it means that even in the unlikely scenario that the war will come to a quick end. You know, there are other underlying factors in the world economy that will keep the pressure on food prices high uh, in any case. Uh, but what, what we have now, you know, with, with the war, it, it's like, I mean, what, what you said in, in your introduction, it's, it's like a perfect storm where, you know, the lingering effects of the pandemic meets the breaking up of global supply chains, meets a worsening climate crisis. And then on top of this already big pile of issues, you, you, know, you know, you add a major interimperialist war Unrolling uh, two of the biggest food and energy exporters uh, in the world, and, and that creates, you know, the, the sort of like perfect recipe for a very explosive cocktail. I mean, what the United Nations describes as, as a global food crisis beyond anything we have seen since uh, World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Russia and Ukraine are among the top five global exporters of many uh, important foodstuffs, cereals, oil seeds, including wheat, barley, sunflowers, corn, etc. Uh, Russia is one of the world's uh, largest exporters of fertilizers as well. Uh, and above all, they are both major wheat exporters with around 50 countries in the world uh, relying on Ukraine and Russia for 30% or more of their wheat uh, supplies. And now the war and its consequences, uh, which include Russia you know, bombing Ukrainian fields and warehouses, uh, its blockade of Ukrainian uh, ports, but also you know, the sweeping trade and financial sanctions imposed on Russia by Western countries, uh, as well as Ukraine's ban on the export of some food products to prevent uh, a domestic uh, humanitarian crisis. All these factors are kind of like, yeah, provoking major harvest, supply and shipment disruptions, which are resulting in, in, in these shortages and driving food prices uh, through, uh, through the roof. When you take the case of Lebanon, which you, which you already mentioned. Uh, I think you, you, know, you said that Ukraine and Russia combined provide something like 80% of its wheat. You know, this is a country where already before the war, four out of five people were food insecure. A country where you had already a situation of hyperinflation, uh, meaning that, you know, uh, prices in the shop uh, sometimes can increase several times between the moment you wake up in the morning and the moment you go to bed uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the evening. And, and I mean, there, the fallout from the war in Ukraine means that bread, which is such a central part of people's diets and was still, you know, a, a relatively affordable option for many poor people, uh, before the war, is now uh, also becoming an increasingly unaffordable, almost like a luxury uh, uh, item. But, you know, let's not forget the fact that in the last instance, you know, it all comes down to the fact that food production and distribution under capitalism is organized not to feed people, but to make money. I mean, it's a basic point, but, you know, they, they managed to get truckloads and billions worth of weapons delivered to Ukraine in a very short time but they wouldn't deliver food and water to starving populations as quickly and efficiently uh, in the same way that they didn't do it with the COVID vaccine distribution uh, during the, the, you know, the, the peak of the pandemic, because you know, this is not profitable. I mean, it's as simple as that. You know? And in that sense, you know, what I said in the beginning actually is not fully accurate because there is, you know, at the end of the day, there is one root cause driving all these problems and, and that is uh, capitalism itself. So today, for example, only four giant companies dominate 75% of grain trading, uh, and they all recorded a surge in their profits last year. So, you know, be sure that this new food crisis won't be lost for everyone because it creates, you know, mass hunger and misery 
uh, at one pool, but it creates also you know uh, profit and even uh, speculative opportunities for a tiny few uh, on these on, on the other side of the spectrum. There you have like millions of people on the brink of famine, not because there isn't enough food available in the world, but because every actor which has a stake in this business needs to make a profit, and because the way you know this chaotic for-profit system is organized. Uh, basically doesn't allow the food to get to the right mouth at prices people can afford. I mean, that's the real problem. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, it's kind of this really glaring example of the fact that uh, this war is just another layer of how the rich are creating problems that the poor are paying for. Uh, and that is from, you know, the war itself, the fighting itself, and the people who are dying in this war, but also around the world, like like you explained, that the, the 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 consequences of this war, how they exacerbate already existing problems that exist in the society because of the way that society is organized. Um, but I think at the same time, like you said, it's not a problem that was created by the war. It's a problem that we've seen, especially in the neo-colonial world, over and over and over again uh, in in the last few years, especially. But at the same time, we've also seen kind of like resistance against it, which I think is a really important thing to bring out here because it can be really depressing to just think about all the people dying from war and from famine. Um, but people are not like people are not just dying in a war; they're fighting back uh, against uh, imperialism uh, in in uh, in a lot of places around the world. It's also the case uh, where people who are uh, uh, you know, dying of uh, uh, lack of, of food shortages are fighting back. And we've seen uh, since 2019, especially, we've seen a lot of revolutionary movements in uh, the uh, uh, in the neocolonial world uh, kind of fighting back, especially from, you know, the, the high costs of very, you know, basic, uh, uh, very basic things. But then we had the pandemic, which obviously caused an even bigger problem and caused uh, millions of people to uh, uh, not just die, but also become even poorer than they were before. So I was wondering, what is the situation now? Do we, are we seeing kind of like a, a re-emergence of this uh, kind of movement, of these movements around the world? Uh, and do you think that that is kind of uh, the way that kind of history is going to proceed uh, because of this new situation, like I think Dara explained as well, that exists in the world right now? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think what we are seeing is that, you know, this, this sort of like a global inflationary spiral, uh, which has now been aggravated by the war in Ukraine, is is triggering a new wave of global protests, basically. You know, we've been pushed onto the streets in a whole series of countries already. I mean, some of the flashpoints have already been mentioned, Sri Lanka, Sudan, Peru. Um, which are probably you know, the countries where protests have had so far the, the highest level of intensity. This is a global phenomenon. And you can feel a sense of you know, nervousness and anxiety you know, among the ruling classes about this. I mean, in the document published last week, for example, the, the UN warned that the rising food prices threatens uh, what they call knock-on effects of social unrest. A couple of days ago, it was the IMF's turn to you know, kind of ring the alarm bells about the probability for uh, wider social tensions because of energy and food prices rising to what they describe themselves as intolerable uh, levels. And they have all reasons to be worried, of course, because, you know, if you look, for example, in the Middle East and North Africa, uh, you know, there is a long history of, of riots, revolts, and revolutions uh, triggered by hikes in food prices. 
uh, and the specter of the so-called Arab Spring, uh, for which this issue was a key driver, is now kind of hunting the, the ruling elites. I mean, in February uh, already, so that was even before the war in Ukraine started, thousands of Palestinians uh, demonstrated in several cities of the, of the West Bank against the increased price of basic goods with slogans such as, we want to leave, no to high prices, etc. Uh, last yeah. month, uh, thousands of people protested in Iraq, uh, mostly in the southern regions, which had been already the epicenter of the mass protest movement that, that took place uh, uh, precisely in, uh, in 2019 as the price of flour rose by a third and the price of cooking oil doubled uh, literally overnight. And in the city of Nasiria, you know, really reflecting the mood, uh, you had demonstrators raising banners with the slogan, uh, this is a revolution of the hungry, you know. Uh, and quite significantly, these protests in Iraq forced the government to announce uh, several measures in the aftermath, like a monthly allowance to poor civil servants and pensioners, as well as to crack down on some of the profiteering uh, traders. I mean, these were mostly limited measures to try and kind of like nip these protests in the bud. But it shows, you know, that the ruling class is kind of sitting on a social powder cake. And I think that's something you can say for pretty much the entire uh, uh, region. There's, of course, the case of Sudan. I mean, we should remember that the dictator Omar al-Bashir was overthrown just a few months after the tripling of the price of bread in the country. Uh, and that revolution started in Adbara, the very same city where fresh protests against rising prices erupted last month along with an open strike by railway workers over their low wages and the delays in their wages payment. So, you know, like in Iraq, you know, the elements of continuity also with the mass revolutionary struggles of 2019 are, are pretty clear, you know. Uh, and, and in a country like Sudan, the food situation is absolutely terrible. I mean, according to the World Food uh, Programme, more than 18 million Sudanese will face acute hunger by the end of this year. I mean, that's double the number of last year. Uh, and again, you see here the war in Ukraine played kind of a big role in making a situation that was already bad considerably worse because uh, Sudan's dependence on wheat imports from Russia and Ukraine is among the highest in the whole of Africa. Uh, I think it's around 75% of its wheat imports which come from these two countries uh, alone. Uh, but of course, like everywhere else, there are you know, national factors involved as well. I think it would be simplistic. Uh, and in fact, it's a convenient excuse for the rulers in many places to you know, attribute everything to the war as if it was, you know, totally out of their control. Because in a country like Sudan, you know, there is an ongoing power struggle uh, between the revolutionary masses and a thoroughly corrupt and brutal military regime, which has seized all power in a military coup uh, last October, following which there was already a collapse uh, in living standards. And that regime is, you know, headed by uh, generals, security officials, and warlords who control key portions of the country's economy, who have enriched themselves massively at the expense of the majority of the population, uh, you know, uh, and where over the last uh, two or three years uh, slashed the state subsidies on fuel, on electricity, on floor, on cooking gas, on, on pretty much everything, uh, while at the same time dedicating much of the state budget on military means and on the control and repression uh, of the masses. So, you know, the recent protests we have seen there are not just an immediate reaction to price increases. They have, uh, you know, sort of added on to an ongoing movement of resistance and opposition to the military junta. And in these protests, you know, the rejection of military rule, uh, you know, has remained a central part of the people's uh, uh, demands. Uh, in Iran, to name another country, in recent weeks, you had municipal workers, uh, oil workers, telecommunication workers, teachers, who've all gone on strike to demand uh, increases to their wages and pensions. Uh, in Turkey, there has been a sharpening of the class struggle uh, recently uh, uh, as well, with a large wave of strikes shaping many sectors since the beginning of, of this year to demand again uh, wage increases in line with the, the soaring inflation. 
So uh, just to give a number, at least 108 strikes were recorded in Turkey just in January and February of this year, which is more than the average annual we've seen in previous years. You know, uh, And it has also stimulated the drive for new layers of workers uh, uh, towards uh, the trade unions. And I think you know there are many other countries that could and will face uh, similar uh, developments. Uh, in that region in particular, I mean, in other regions too, of course, but I think you know the Middle East and North Africa is particularly exposed because it's a region highly dependent on food imposed from Russia and Ukraine. So you know the, the war can be the, the sort of factor tipping the whole situation over. Yeah, thanks very much, AJ. I like how you explained about you know the novel situation created by the war and its consequences, but also the continuity with these extremely powerful movements that um yeah that continue we've continue have unresolved uh demands and you know continue to see mobilizations today um but related to that actually and one of the places that in over the last number of weeks where perhaps we've seen one of the more developed movements take place is in peru and andre you've been on before where we've previously discussed some of the significant political events that have taken place there in 2020 we had protests we um against the the planned coup um you know this period of enormous political instability uh following on from that we saw the electoral breakthrough from the left last year with pedro castillo um which was a big talking point i think around the world because he came from relatively nowhere here was this rural trade unionist teacher who, yeah, I think there was a story where CNN um, didn't even have a picture of him uh, because he was such an outsider, but tapped into this mood of mass anger um, and came from nowhere, narrowly beaten out. The Keiko Fujimori, daughter of uh, Alberto Fujimori, former dictator of Peru, the far-right candidate, um, and quite a relatively bold program where we talked about um, how no one should be rich in a poor country like Peru, talked about nationalization, talking about uh, radical redistribution of wealth. Um, but we're only eight months into this, um, this new left government, this new progressive government, and already it's entered into quite a profound crisis in which a movement has taken place triggered by this, um, things, very similar things that JJ have just been talking about, rising fuel fuel rising food um and yeah so i think it would be great andre if you kind of give us more of a an insight of how this movement really got going and what does it mean now for the castillo government yeah yeah it's true dara uh, i think that uh, in the case of peru the rise in fuel and food prices some of the effects of the war in ukraine uh, work at like throwing petrol on the fire because Peru had been facing a deep political, economic and social crisis even before the war in Ukraine. The protests that started more than a couple of weeks ago reflect the deepening of this situation. We have, as you said, uh, spoken here in the World to Win before about uh, Pedro Castillo's election and um, the general political crisis in, in Peru. You know that... Uh, um, the, the, the election of Pedro Castillo came after the fall of three of the country's presidents. For example, Manuel Merino uh, was forced to resign in the late 2020 by the force of a powerful mass movement. 
uh, it's not too much to recall that practically all of the country's presidents of the last 30 years have responded to judicial proceedings for corruption or human rights violations. Many were imprisoned. Uh, and one of them, Alan Garcia, for example, committed suicide just as he was about to be arrested. So Peru was also one of the countries that suffered most from the pandemic and the economic crisis. Until now, uh, there have been 215,000 uh, uh, deaths from COVID-19 in a population of 33 million people. It is the worst mortality rate in the world. There have been 6,300 deaths per million inhabitants in, in Peru. Among the many consequences of this strategy are the so-called COVID orphans, some uh, 93,000 children who lost their parents uh, during the pandemic. So at the peak of the pandemic in 2020, the Peruvian economy suffered an 11% uh, drop in GDP with evident increases in poverty and social inequality. The record growth of 13% uh, of GDP uh, last year did not solve the country's social, political and economic problems. So Pedro Castillo was elected president last year as a popular response to this crisis. As you said, he defeated the, in the second round uh, Keiko Fujimori, the daughter of the dictator Alberto Fujimori. And Castillo was elected with the support of the majority of the workers and peasants and only uh, he only assumed the presidency of the country because there was a great popular mobilization against the attempts of the right wing and the extreme right wing to not recognize the electoral result and prevent his uh, inauguration. So the Peruvian right wing and the ruling class from the beginning trying to destabilize and overthrow the new government. The Castillo's uh, response, however, was not to rely on popular mobilizations to promote profound transformations in Peruvian society and uh, in, in, in this way impose a defeat of the right wing. Castillo preferred to seek a path of a reconciliation with the right. He abandoned the project of nationalizing the mining companies, for example, and also changing the country's constitution. This constitution uh, in, in Peru, is, it was uh, a constitution made by, uh, in 1993, under the dictatorship of Alberto Fujimori. So, in essence, he did not break with the new liberal model adopted in the country in the last uh, decades. So, Castillo uh, ousted the prime, prime minister, uh, the president of the Council of Ministers, uh, that was uh, linked with his party, Peru Libre, uh, just in the beginning of his government and began to replace ministers considered to be from the left, too much from the left, to more moderate, uh, more even right-wing representatives. Since Castillo took office uh, nine months ago, he has already formed four different cabinets and replaced 30 ministers, which is the equivalent of one every week. So as a consequence, Castillo has lost popular support, but has not been able to contain the attacks from the right wing, which continues to systematically try to unseat him through parliament uh, maneuvers. So, but the Congress, uh, the parliament, is also uh, 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 the target of a strong popular rejection also. So the la latest uh, polls indicate that while on the one hand, 76% of the population reject Castillo's government. On the other side, 
82% rejected the current Congress of, of the country. So inflation in the country in last March was the highest since August 1998 and continues to, to, to rise. Official unemployment is close to 10%. Uh, the high prices of fertilizers and food and, uh, uh, and petrol uh, triggered protests, beginning with the truck drivers, peasants, but also workers and other sectors. The protest, protests uh, began with the truck drivers on 28 March, and the movement expanded in the following days, leading to roadblocks ac across the country. The government's first response was to decree a curfew in Lima and Callao. Uh, the clashes with the repressive forces have already led to six deaths uh, as a consequence. So the government then ended up lifting the curfew, uh, much criticized by leftist forces and uh, the social movements, and they announced an increase of 10% in the minimum wage and uh, also a reduction on, on, on fuel taxes and order taxes, but with little concrete effect. So the protest continued, especially uh, from April 7, this time with more effective participation of the workers' unions, the CGTP and uh, the SUTEP, the education workers, the teachers' uh, trade union, the sector where Castillo himself comes, comes from. So this trade union, these teachers' trade union leaders called on the government to change uh, uh, its policies, to change course or else resign. So they demanded uh, the resumption of the program uh, of change that Castillo defended in the electoral campaign. And the process of mobilization was really an authentic popular and workers' response to the crisis. But obviously, the right wing is also trying to use the crisis to destabilize Castillo's government. But also, the ruling elite in Peru also fear uh, uh, about the strength of the popular movement. In recent days, the region of Cusco, the historical capital of the Inca uh, uh, civilization, where Machu Picchu is located, etc., uh, is... is uh, um, is experiencing a general strike. It's a region with uh, every year you have one million tourists. Uh, at this moment, uh, uh, living a general strike, a 48 hours general strike, paralyzing almost all the activities in the region. So the potential for the struggles still remains, and so does the stability uh, uh, of the government. What, what is needed is to build channels of organization and independent struggle for workers, peasants, and the poor people, and to arm this struggle with a program to break with the neoliberal policies and the corrupt political system in, in the country. This means rescuing the banners of change that Castillo raised in the election and ended up abandoning, uh, uh, but uh, uh, like, like, for example, the nationalization of the mining and changing the constitution, etc., but also going even further Pointing, pointing in an anti-capitalist and socialist perspective. That is, that is the way for the movement uh, uh, needs to, to follow in the next period. Thanks very much, Andre, for that uh, very comprehensive answer that yeah, really put things in their, in their context of um, previous movements we saw in Peru that really brought Castillo to power. I mean, one thing to me that is quite striking is that how the government of Castillo that came to power on, on a program with popular support from working class people and peasants so quickly entered in crisis. Um, and why is that? Well, 
it's not like the previous cycle of you know the pink tide governments that people are talking about now uh pedro castillo inherited a situation of crisis on every front you know um and yeah he's by following that road of compromise um it hasn't you know with the his wiggle room his space for maneuver within this more much more crisis prone capitalist system is is much uh is much less in this period um which me also means that's not just isolated to peru but actually something that we're going to see all over latin america some of the same problems of inflation of food insecurity of um yeah economic stagnation are also uh, problems that other countries are grappling with as well so andre i'd like to ask you about that are other latin american countries facing a similar situation and how is this likely to play out over the next period yeah well uh, i think that the war in ukraine while distant from the region has enormous implications for latin america uh, political implications, geopolitical implications, economic and social, and also on consciousness. And we cannot underestimate this, and this will be uh, a mark of the next period. So inflation is a problem affecting all Latin America, uh, and, and it mainly affects the poorest sectors of the population. So with high inflation, there is a tendency to rise the interest rates, which leads to low growth, worsening unemployment, and thus the spectre of stagflation also looms in the, in the region. Chile, for example, rises interest rates in February for the first time in 20 years. In Mexico and Colombia, the inflation in March uh, reached 1%, and projections, projections uh, are for even higher uh, uh, growth in, in the coming period. Argentina, for example, has been facing a serious social crisis that tends to get worse, uh, inflation in Argentina is officially above 50% uh, per year, even with the uh, policy of the price freeze uh, from the government at the, the end of the last year. So now the scenario could get worse. There are uh, shortages, long queues in supermarkets, and prices are readjusted every week. 40% of the Argentinian population lives in poverty, 65 percent of children are poor in Argentina at this moment and Argentina is still uh, 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 tangled up with its uh, foreign debt and the recent agreement with the IMF will not represent more stability but, uh, but on the contrary counter reforms attacks and this will not solve the problem so the, the more indebted countries in the region like Argentina and Ecuador may suffer more from from the crisis uh, large demonstrations have already taken place in Argentina against the IMF uh, agreement and its uh, consequences, and this struggle is likely to continue in the in the coming period. In Brazil, inflation has exceeded 10% by 2021. In March, inflation was 1.62%, the highest since 1994, and uh, uh, the inflation was stimulated by mainly by the rise in fuel, transport, food prices, etc., as in the other countries. And we, if we add the effects of the war in Ukraine with the climate crisis, the scenario gets worse. The water crisis in Brazil has directly affected the generation of energy in hydroelectric plants and has pushed up electricity uh, prices 
in the country. So even before the crisis uh, generated by the war in Ukraine, more than half of the Brazilian population, around 110 million people, were experiencing food insecurity. Of these people, around 20 million were in a serious, uh, are in a serious situation. So this is an explosive situation, especially if we consider the scenario of social struggles in Latin America since 2019. Uh, the social and economic situation today is worse than it was in 2019. And uh, that is why we are seeing uh, uh, a new wave of progressive governments being elected in the region. And after the recent election of Boric in Chile, there is the perspective of the election of Gustavo Petro in Colombia in the May 29 elections. Lula is still the favorite in Brazilian uh, October elections. And uh, in the case of Brazil, but also in other countries, uh, the imminence of elections, the perspective of elections and the possibility of political change means that much of the popular dissatisfaction is channeled into uh, disputes within the political institutions within parliamentary uh, electoral logic, etc. But a response within the order, the political order within the system, uh, will not be able to attend popular demands completely and struggles are inevitable. So Latin America, the, the Latin American reality in the coming period will be one of a social and political polarization, deepening the crisis, major uh, mass struggles and new progressive governments being put to the test. And also, evidently, we also have the ultra-right forces trying to take advantage of the limits and deficiencies of the left and center-left forces in, in the region. One of the lessons of the Peruvian process is the need for the left and the social and working class movements to prepare themselves to build the struggle by questioning the basis of the capitalist system, which is what generate uh, the crisis. So the path, the, the way of class conciliation adopted by Castillo proved to be a failure in Peru, but also in Brazil and in other countries of the region. I think we are seeing all of these, this rage, and I think you made a really important point there, Andre, about how kind of like, even in the kind of um, normal kind of parliamentary way, we're still seeing kind of the consciousness change. But I also think that like, combined with the movements on the streets, uh, we're seeing a, this real rage that just needs to be directed uh, and uh, using uh, using the strategies of the working class to be able to actually defeat the, the, the problems that we're seeing on an international level. And I think it's really interesting to see how these movements are basically uh, happening across the world. You know, we're talking about Latin America, we're talking about North Africa and uh, the Middle East. Um, and obviously South Asia as well. And I think it's 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 really important to see that this is in the minds of people as well, can all connected on an international level. And I wanted to come back to a point that uh, JJ made uh, uh, a few moments ago about the uh, so-called Arab Spring, you know, uh, or if anything, I wanna go back uh, 11 years in time uh, to it because obviously uh, uh, for those of us who remember it, uh, th those movements uh, uh, started from a similar situation of uh, very sharp hikes in prices. 
Uh, and I was wondering, JJ, because obviously you wrote a really uh, fantastic book about uh, about Tunisia as well, which is uh, really recommended. It will be in the description box uh, uh, for you to uh, look at, everyone watching us. Uh, but also, I think the points that you made about how uh, there are some similarities. I was wondering if you can kind of talk us through those similarities and do you think that the movements now have the potential to grow to the level that the uh, Arab Spring did and then maybe beyond and uh, be uh, even more successful in uh, kind of the, 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 the conclusions of it? Yeah, I mean, I think there are quite a lot of, you know, parallels and similarities with the situation, you know, back 11 or 10 years ago and, and the situation today. Uh, you know, I, I can't remember the exact quote, but, you know, Karl Marx once said, you know, that when, when the productive forces cannot develop anymore within the confines of the existing economic system or mode of production, you know, society enters a, a, an era of social revolution, you know, something along those lines. And I think, you know, the, this incapacity of capitalism to drive society forward is, you know, stagnation and even regression of the productive forces with... Uh, mass youth unemployment, obscene inequalities, you know, the, the blatant corruption and parasitism of the ruling elites, uh, you know, uh, the increasingly suffocating, brutalizing and repressive political atmosphere. You know, this is what drove people to rise up in their millions uh, during the, the so-called Arab Spring uh, uh, in, in, in that region. And all these factors are still there, you know. <laughs> They've actually been compounded in, in most cases over the last uh, a decade, you know. Uh, there is an economist called Michael Tankum or Tanshum, I don't even know how to pronounce his name, but, you know, basically he calculated that the level of inflation for food products in that region had reached the exact same level as in the immediate build-up to the so-called Arab Spring in June 2021, so in the middle of last year. But since then, of course, you know, the prices have gone uh, much further than that. Uh, and I don't know if you, know, you remember, but at the time of the Tunisian Revolution, you could see, you know, pictures of uh, demonstrators protesting with, with you know, the, the baguettes and the French bread uh, in their hands. One of the most popular slogans of the Egyptian revolution was bread, freedom and social justice. So it shows, you know, how explosive this issue of, of, of bread and food prices, uh, which is now, you know, back with full force, uh, can become. But of course, that's not the only issue. Uh, inequalities have exploded further. I mean, just for the anecdote, it was revealed recently that the, the former royal couple of Dubai, spent uh, $3 million on strawberries in one single summer. <laughs> and in the meantime, you know, millions of people can barely feed themselves. Uh, unemployment and corruption are as rampant as they were uh, back then. And even, you know, the promises of democracy have been completely shattered. You know, even Tunisia, since last year, is now on a, on a fast track to new autocracy, basically, you know, with the president's side having monopolized the power and dismantled the, the parliament. And now uh, he's on a rampage against uh, democratic rights. And as we explained when, you know, the, the first move towards that uh, happened last year, unless Saïd was ready to mobilize the masses, challenge the economic power of the country's super wealthy, the, the speculators, the large corporations, the IMF, etc., he wouldn't have the necessary resources to, you know, preserve the support base that had initially welcomed uh, his power back, you know, in the, in the vain expectation that he was somewhat solved their problems, you know? And now the serious economic crisis hitting uh, the country, which has been dramatically accelerated by the conflict in Ukraine, is kind of bringing this whole reality to the fore. You know, we have uh, uh, supporters of ISA in, in Tunis, and they report that in, in supermarkets, 
some shelves remain uh, you know empty for weeks. It has become a struggle to find uh, you know basic stuff like flour, uh, sugar, eggs, etc. And everything like food, petrol, medicine has become much more expensive. Uh, there are long queues in the in form of bakeries uh, to get bread. There are increasing delays in the public in the payment of public sector wages and so on and so forth. And in this context, the popularity of the president has already been uh, seriously eroded. So we see on the political effect this is already uh, uh, having. Egypt is, you know, as the world's largest wheat importer, it's not in a better place, quite the, quite the opposite. Uh, I mean, beyond all the problems already listed, the war in Ukraine has also deprived Egypt of another important source of income, which is tourism, because almost a third of its tourist inflows in recent years came from Russia and, and Ukraine. Um, and as we often say, you know, the, the chain of capitalism tends to break at its weakest link. That's what we saw, you know, uh, during the uh, the so-called Arab Spring, and that's what we can see uh, in the future uh, uh, as well. I mean, Sri Lanka for uh, naming, you know, what's happening in in Asia is clear from that point of view. But also from that point of view, I think you know when you look at the Middle East and North Africa, it's quite interesting to note that precisely Egypt and Tunisia, the two countries that originated the revolutions of 2010 and 11, are now you know both back in the eye of a, of an economic storm. Really, you know, like for many low-income countries. Uh, in the neo-colonial world and so on, the war in Ukraine is accelerating these countries' debt crisis as they face, you know, rising costs for their imports, rising borrowing costs because of the tightening of uh, monetary policies by uh, Western uh, central banks, and declining economic growth uh, as well. So they are now both on the verge of debt default that are in talks with the IMF uh, to get bailed out, and that will be done in exchange of what the IMF itself describes as deep structural reforms. And, you know, we all know what that means. It means this government will have to resort, will, will, sorry, will have to resort to, uh, to policies such as wage freezes, uh, cuts in subsidies, uh, and cuts in other crucial social spending like health and education, uh, currency devaluations and the likes. And all of this in, in the very midst of a massive surge in food and energy prices. And I mean, you, you don't really need to be an expert work out you know that a situation like this is a, is a one-way ticket to social and political uh, and political upheavals including the possibility absolutely for new mass revolutionary uh, uh, movements of course we can never be sure how exactly things will unfold and it will involve you know more negative developments as well more vicious cycles of counter-revolution uh, you know perhaps you know mass outflow of uh, refugees possible new wars in the region and so on but I think if we can be certain of one thing is that you know the barbaric conditions capitalism is driving people into uh, will mean millions of poor and workers will be left with no other choice but to fight back to secure uh, their survival, and that you know really brings uh, to light the emergency of uh, you know the, the question of political organization of the working class uh, and the youth and the masses in the region and across the world uh, to be able to uh, you know have a more successful outcome than uh, what happened uh, a decade ago. Yeah, and you know, I think it's really interesting to see these kind of parallels that existed because we have been in uh, over a decade now of upheavals. We've had kind of crisis leading to another crisis, leading to another crisis, and we're seeing it particularly in the neo-colonial world. But I think all across the world, working class people are feeling feeling this burden of um, of the the the, uh, the contradictions within the capitalist system. Um, and obviously, when we're talking about the Arab Spring, there's a lot of lessons that need to be learned for the movements that 
are hopefully and uh, are pretty likely are going to uh, continue arising now with a similar situation just I guess uh, after people have been more and more and more worn down in the last uh, uh, decade. Uh, so Andre, I wanted to ask you, um, what do you think is needed to genuinely fight these kind of rises in prices, uh, the, the war, the, the lowering of conditions around the world and especially in the neocolonial world? How can we learn from the Arab Spring and from the you know, struggles that happened before and what is actually needed to uh, defeat this now? Yes, yeah, I think that is a fundamental uh, question. Uh, what is the way out of the crisis and what program and what strategy of struggle uh, is necessary for the working class uh, in this increasingly dramatic situation. I think, I think that uh, uh, the Arab Spring is an example of the necessity of a program that can answer uh, uh, this, this dramatic situation and can put a strategy uh, forward in terms of, uh, of uh, for the working class to be uh, uh, successful in his, in his struggle. And so the necessity of a program and uh, building political forces that can answer that is, is, is very important. I think that the situation we are living now, uh, for example, as some bourgeois commentators have already said, this war in Ukraine is a global war in terms that uh, it reflects a larger inter-imperialist dispute, a process of profound transformations in international capitalism and affects the whole world. And I, I think that in this context, Latin America, Africa, Asia, and the whole world uh, seems if, are in a situation where we need we need to understand the change in, in, in the situation and the tasks for the for the the left and the working class. So in this context, for Latin America, for example, there is uh, no possible way out of the crisis. For example, if you confront this inter-imperialist dispute by aligning itself with either side in this uh, conflict. Uh, any illusion that China or even Russia represent a better way forward than that of Western imperialism domination, for example, could be fatal and could disarm the mass movement. And I think this is a, a, a factor. This is a debate also in, in Latin America, for example. Uh, if you look, for example, the dilemma uh, in Venezuela, for example, part of what was the Chavista left in the past is today divided between those who want to promote a kind of uh, reconciliation with the United States, which now needs Venezuelan oil, for example, and they are a bit more open to renegotiation the situation with Venezuela, and those who want to continue betting on the relation and also the dependence on China and Russia, for example. I think that this, this is not the way out for, for the crisis. The way out of the crisis is through the independent struggle of the working class and its unity uh, with the movements of the pressed sectors of society, the indigenous peoples, the women's movement, the black people's movement, etc. So the strength of this struggle has already been demonstrated by the popular uh, uprisings since 2019 in Ecuador, Chile, Colombia, Bolivia, and Peru itself, etc. Um, working class organizations must rise a program capable of attending popular demands and making the super-rich elite pay the price of the crisis and not the workers and the poor. 
In this program, it is necessary to raise demands like the freezing of fuel, gas and uh, food prices uh, together with the control of supply by workers organized in a democratic way. We must fight for a general increase in wages and pensions, an end to job insecurity and informality, reduction of the working days to, 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 day to create jobs. And uh, it's also fundamental to implement radical agrarian reform with expropriation of with the big uh, owners, uh, landowners, uh, the latifundios. And with this, uh, we will have food production for the people and the, also, at the same time, the defense uh, uh, of the environment. So, nationalization with workers' control of the mines and oil production that is a demand in Peru and also in other countries is, is, is fundamental to guarantee the, the sovereign, sovereignty uh, of the Latin American peoples over their own wealth, but at the same time, because it can uh, contain the destruction of the environment, only the working class uh, uh, in control of this uh, uh, means of production can really have a plan that can defend the environment. So the non-payment of the internal and external debts uh, to the big capitalists and uh, the reversion of these resources to pay the social debt to, to the people through housing, health, education, job creation, etc. And together with this, uh, to avoid the flight of capital and the reaction of the big capitalists, it will be necessary to nationalize the banks and the financial system with workers' control. So also nationalization of the companies that, uh, for example, lay off workers and uh, the nationalization of the key sectors of the economy, it's, it's necessary so uh, that we can have an economy democratically planned by the working class. So some, some elements of a really anti-capitalist and, and socialist program uh, can uh, organize broad sectors of the working class and oppressed people, uh, mobilize them and, and uh, create the foundations for a genuine workers' government in each country uh, in the direction of uh, uh, regional integration in the case of Latin America, the perspective, for example, for, of a socialist federation of Latin America, but also in a perspective of a socialist world. And I think that this program is fundamental to be uh, raised by the forces of the left, uh, the socialist left in, 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 in the world at this moment. ISA is working to help building the political forces necessary to defend this program among the working class and the oppressed people. And I think that that's the moment to build ISA and our forces in all the world uh, more than ever. Thank you so much, Andre. I think this is a, a brilliant kind of point to finish on, uh, to kind of call everyone to join us. Obviously, International Socialist Alternative has uh, uh, members and activists in over 30 countries around the world. So wherever you are, you can join us uh, and we can build this movement that Andre and JJ were talking about together. So uh, don't forget to uh, leave us your details if you're not already a member. And I want to say a big thank you to both Andre and JJ for being here with us. I'm sure that this episode is going to be really useful for a lot of people. I know they was uh, very useful for me as well. I feel so much knowledgeable, oh, so much more knowledgeable about it. And I think that this is going to be a really big thing that's going to develop continuously 
uh, whether there's a war or not uh, with kind of like the fluctuation of prices. So it's really important that we understand where it comes from and also how to fight back. So thank you again, Andre and, J and JJ, and see you very soon. And now for our favorite part of every episode, the shout out of the week. And I want to ask you, Dara, what are we going to shout out about? Well, I'm particularly excited about this one because it's for two very important comrades, Neil Moore and Amy Ferguson, who are both going to be contesting the assembly elections in Northern Ireland uh, next month. Two of them are outstanding young trade union activists and they're standing on a very bold programme to take up workers' rights, gender oppression, environmental destruction, but also fighting against sectarianism and pointing a way forward for working class unity. Uh, so it's a very dynamic campaign of, you know, driven by young people and workers and yeah, wish them all the best and hopefully try, hopefully some, one of us might get over to assist them at some stage. Uh, uh, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, obviously if you're in Northern Ireland, check out, uh, whether you can uh, vote for them or whether you, they're in your constituency. Uh, and really congratulations, uh, for kind of going on this campaign. Uh, we're obviously all behind you and anyone who's watching this and doesn't know Neil and Amy and doesn't know what we do in Northern Ireland and how our organization is fighting against capitalism but also sectarianism like Dara said make sure to check out uh, our section in uh, Ireland and specifically in the north uh, to see kind of the program because there's so much that they're doing that is brilliant uh, so thank you so much everyone for watching and see you in two weeks this is World to Win. Every Sunday, we broadcast with speakers from across the globe, bringing you the latest news and analysis on the fast-moving global events from a socialist perspective. Subscribe to the International Socialist Alternatives YouTube page and click the bell to get notified when we go live for a new episode. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram because there's a lot to do and we have a world to win. When they fight! When they fight! When they fight! Solidarity!